everybody, and welcome to Will This Be On The Test. I'm Maddie. And I'm Austin. And we're here today to talk about some things we should have learned in school, but didn't learn, didn't learn fully, or didn't learn correctly. And sometimes we talk about how Maddie is apparently the person people go to when they have questions about Bigfoot. Yeah, I out of the blue had someone message me and ask, is Bigfoot vegan? And, or veg, veg, vegan or vegetarian? And I just answered the question like it was it, like it was any other question. And I gave some examples about why I think he's an omnivore. And we had like this long discussion until they pointed out, hey, do you realize that you haven't asked why I asked? I'm like, I was just wondering why I haven't asked why you asked. It's like, I don't even this ask questions. This is just a normal question for me. It's like, oh, yeah, let me tell you about Bigfoot. I know all about Bigfoot. Yeah, the only thing I couldn't find was the story about the guy who said he was brought back to Bigfoot's den and like fed by Bigfoot's family. I couldn't find that story because that talked about the use of tools a little bit more than the Battle of Ape Canyon. Yep. Which the Battle of Ape Canyon is about them using basic tools. But at this moment, I kind of still wonder if those weren't guys in ghillie suits and they just killed one of them. Who knows? I mean, it was it's the West, man. Everyone's got guns. Everyone's mad. Yeah, my thing is, if you're not out hunting during a specific hunting season, and an animal or creature or something isn't bothering you, why are you shooting at it? Yeah. Like, it's just walking. It's just, it didn't even look at you. Why are you shooting it? It's like, I guess you don't understand what bored guys do for fun when they have guns, I guess. I feel like this is just a bunch of bored miners with guns. You've been a bored person with a gun? And It's true. I have never tried to shoot Bigfoot. I have tried to see if I could shoot a salt block from 100 yards away. Could you? Yeah. I'm good chat. I've only been shooting, like, I guess I did did it once as a kid, and it was, but it was like a really old rifle, because it was like one of those, like, this is what the world used to be like kind of camps. And he had me hold the gun wrong, so I ended up getting a nice bruise in my shoulder Ouch. more than anything else. And, but when you took me shooting, I had like a 90% accuracy. Yeah, you were good. So better watch out, guys. I'm super dangerous and very pro-gun. She is. Oh my gosh, I can see... Like, an NRA tattoo appeared on her forehead. What is happening? It, it did. No, it's like, you won't... I... No. I, I don't like them. No. It, that left a bad taste in my mouth. They're bad. Well, you aren't supposed to eat them. What? Yeah, they're not food. I know I know they're rich in iron. I'm assuming they were vegetables. No. What? No, they're not... Ve vegetables are, like, green, usually. Like, and that wasn't even... Like, I guess you could paint a gun green. Was it green? No. It was made of wood and metal. <laughs> Oh, boy. So, yeah, apparently, like, I don't question when I'm asked about cryptids or ghosts. I just assume that this is a normal conversation at this point. <laughs> that is where my life is. And you know what? I'm I'm not mad about it. You know, I kind of, like, strive to be the person that, like, if someone's gotten crazy out their question, it's like, oh, yeah, Maddie will just know the answer to this. I'll just ask Maddie. Strive Actually, to be that person. Yeah, no. Um, I was telling Austin, because sometimes when I'm struggling to think of a topic, I ask him, like, what is something I know a lot about? And the answer is nothing, except for apparently Bigfoot. I know a, I know a little about a lot of things, but I don't know a lot about anything except for maybe theater. But theater is a concept. Um, and I, a lot of I'm like, okay, guys, let's practice our movement today. I want you to mirror my hands on this audio platform. Oh, yeah. Um, let's see. The other thing that they don't teach you in school that I just think you need to know real fast, don't buy a house. Don't buy a house. Uh, We've had more house misadventures and just, just don't buy a house. Yeah. I explained it to somebody like this. When you pay rent, your maintenance is already paid for. Many of your utilities are already paid for. It's like, yeah, you might pay for like water or 
electricity or something, your trash is typically included in your rent. Like there are lots of things included in that rent. So you may, you aren't, you're not going to get that big check at the end, but like Austin and I are looking at it like, you know, when we eventually sell this house to move into our van, we will get that big check and we're like, man, this big check looks nice. And remember, oh wait, no, we dumped double this into that house just to keep it from falling down. Mm, just don't do it, kids. I think we should just name our house London Bridge. Like the like the Black Eyed Peas song? What? Oh, wait, no, that was just a Fergie song. I don't even know what that is. Uh, from her Fergalicious album? Dear Lord. Do you not? I can't believe you don't know the classics of our times. I have never been a Fergie fan. It's like when like, were you a Fergie fan? I never was, but there's a cover of it that was just brilliant. No, I'm talking about like our house is falling down. Oh, like okay, My Fair Lady, but not the musical. No. Hey, well, speaking of musicals, I'm going first. Are you? Yeah. Okay. And this is actually related to musicals because Maddie broke my brain. Now I've got London Bridge of Salt falling down stuck in my head, so uh... she's she's broken it even further with this because Maddie. About a month ago, maybe watch Rent. Oh my god, I told you we could skip to the de- not the good parts, but Oh no. The... No, no, no. Rent now is in my head. I can't get rid of it. And it lives there, ironically, rent-free. That's and... the whole point. They're not gonna pay rent, because everything is rent. Also, if we live in Jonathan Larson's world, we get our maintenance for free, as well as our living space for free, so long as we get a f- job from our landlord for which we are paid. Doing exactly what we want to do. Yep. What is the problem here, guys? And unfortunately for me, I don't have a Benny inside of my brain to kick rent out for not paying rent. <laughs> so it's just kind of there now. I think about it. It's a thing. Okay, though, Rosario Dawson's there. So just focus on that part. <sighs> you could focus on Tay Diggs, too. Tay Diggs. Tay Diggs is pretty. Well, he's not there. I just said I don't have a Benny. You could have a Tay Diggs. You could just have a Tay Diggs. Okay. Well, anyway, it's stuck there, but it did give me an idea for an episode. And you might be thinking, okay, Rent, is it going to talk about how little we learned about the AIDS epidemic and how mismanaged it was? No, it's not going to be that, even though we actually grew up at like the tail end of it. We actually should cover how we were taught about it, how the people before us were taught about it, and the fact that they are not taught about it now. Guys, okay, PSA, another PSA, AIDS still exists. Yes. You can still get it. Uh Uh-huh. Don't have unprotected sex until you have both been tested for for STDs, waited three months, gotten tested again, and not had sex with anybody else in that time period. And also don't share needles. Don't use any drugs that require needles unless yeah. you are diabetic in which or similar, in a medically re- required one. And again, don't share those needles either. No. So not going to talk about that. It's like, could I talk about our misconceptions about homelessness? No, not going to talk about that. How about even like drug rehab and how we do drug rehab wrong in the, in the well, everywhere, but especially in America? No, absolutely not. I can... I'm going to talk about Maureen and her art. Wait, are you literally going to be sitting here talking just about... Are you doing like a character analysis of Maureen? No. That is a bummer. I wish you were doing a character analysis of Maureen. I'm actually... I would pay. Austin, if you want to do a character analysis of Maureen on on like the next episode, I will pay for us to be able to watch that live version of Rent that is available online. Ooh, interesting. And I told you, her entrance is much better in that than it was in this, even though you had that build up and you were so scared of when Adele Dazeem would show up. She's just... This looming specter of doom. No, I think Austin is legitimately afraid of Idina Menzel. I think uh, that is a rational fear. Everyone should be afraid of Idina Menzel. Like Austin is afraid of Idina Menzel and babies. Yeah. Oh my God. Imagine if Idina Menzel had a baby. She has several kids. No, I'm very afraid now. Her fa- the father is Tay Diggs. I'm gonna. I need to get. What, I need to get my. Where's your emotional security hammer? <laughs> 
uh, my emotional support katana. Yes. I should have bought a second one from the aggressive katana guy. Well, anyway, specifically, I'm going to talk about Marine's art. Moo with me. Moo he just, with me? For the last month, he has literally just been yelling moo with me in exasperation and fear from time to time. No prompting. It's just out of I nowhere. I woke up in a cold sweat screaming moo with me the other morning. Maybe that's what's happening. I, maybe maybe me punching you in the face didn't fix your nose. Maybe Maureen did. But anyway, have, we, have we mentioned that? Uh, yeah, I think we definitely did. Okay. But she, I... uh, she accidentally hit me in the face. Well, because she flails when she sleeps and my nose popped and I've, now I've mostly stopped snoring. Yeah. So that's the long, that's the short version in case we didn't mention it because yeah. that wouldn't make sense otherwise. But Maureen's little art thing reminded me of an art movement I learned a little bit about and I decided I should share it because I'm going to talk about Dada. Okay. He asked me what I knew about it and I thought it was a religion, but then I remembered that's because somebody on, I knew on Facebook had it as their religion. They had Dadaism as their religion. Yeah. That This is back in, you know, everybody put all that information on Facebook, whereas yeah. now it's like, put as little as you can. Yeah. And what better subject for a podcast than an in-depth discussion of a visual art medium? Okay, the, her was a performing arts medium. Oh, we'll get there. And a bunch of TVs with her lips or something. So some of you might be wondering, what is Dada? Well, it is an absurdist art movement. It is art unmoored from reality and an exaggeration on the growing ab abstract abstraction in art. It popped up around the same time as Picasso and Matisse with Cubism. But this was, it's like, oh, we don't need to paint things exactly as they are. We can abstract things. This took that to an extreme. What would pigeons think about this art? I guarantee you a pigeon would explode. <laughs> if you don't know what we're talking about, go back two or three episodes to learn about pigeons. Yeah. And the name Dada itself is nonsense. There's several stories about how it got picked. Uh, one story was they were just flipping through a dictionary and pointed at a random word, which was Dada, which is a French colloquial name for a hobby horse. Uh, it's also baby talk, referring to a father. It's also yes, yes in Romanian. And that's what they said. But like, it seems like they definitely spent some time thinking about this because they couldn't just pick a random word and do it. This reminds me of... 1999 or so when Kid Rock first showed up on the scene and people tried to explain Ba with the Ba. Ba with the Ba, the bang, the bang, biggie, biggie. Diggy, diggy. Diggy, diggy. Diggy with the boogie. Diggy said the boogie said up, jump the boogie. Yeah. Like the song makes no sense. Guys, that's the point. It's like Mbop doesn't mean anything. And people were actually like, well, he just had a baby, so ba with the ba must mean baby with the bottle. I'm like, no, it's just his him making noises because he couldn't think of lyrics. Yeah. At least, like, at least Mbop was like 13. Yeah, Mbop. And Hansen's awesome. Like, or like, Hansen's you know, uh, a Ziggy Zig Pow from Spice Girls. A Ziggy Zig Ah? Ziggy Zig Ah. Are you, you, are you over there claiming to not know Spice Girls lyrics? Because we will have to have a discussion later. I think it's just time for me to rewatch Spice World. Oh, it has been a while. It has been a while. So yeah, it is, uh, some Dada artists claim that the name was just sounds picked at random. So we don't know exactly how it got its start, but that's what they started with this absurd art movement. And what year is this? It started uh, in 1916 or 17 19... or maybe 1915 and lasted until about 1920, which that's short. Yeah. Well, the movement got its start in Switzerland during World War One, where uh, numerous artists had fled their countries to escape to a neutral country, Switzerland, to kind of get away from from the war. 
kind of like um, Shroot Farms from The Office and the Battle of Shroot Farms. It was a bunch of artists who were pacifists trying to escape from the horrors of war. It was very much like that. That's what we're going to be doing when we live in our van. Yeah. And the Dadaist movement really started as a protest to the absurdity of World War One. They were using absurdism to protest absurdity? Yeah. I dig it. I dig it. It was, um, if the world is absurd, shouldn't art be absurd to reflect the world? And shouldn't we respa- replace this logical absurdism that's causing this war with illogical absurdity? Okay. See, so far I'm on board. I don't get why you're yeah. so angry about this. Oh, no. I, I kind of love it. Okay. But this is like, I am painting the world that Maureen just kind of... Ruined? Ruined. Like, she did it bad. I'm looking up Dada art right now, not so I can get, you know, out of it. I just want to see what you're talking about. So, uh, yeah, if the, uh, a museum curator uh, actually said that Dada explains World War One more than Dada explains Dada. It's a pile of sponges. Called shot number one. <laughs> and as horrifying and brutal as the fighting was in World War One, with, you know, the advent of poisonous gases, just mechanized warfare on a scale we hadn't seen with entire nations bringing their entire industrial complex to war and the just hundreds of thousands of dead just for nothing happening there was a degree of absurdity to this war that you could not escape it's like you know an austrian archduke was assassinated by a bosnian serbian nationalist and therefore uh, british and american soldiers had to fight germany and france and australians had to fight the ottoman empire in gallipoli so <laughs> there was like a lot of people didn't understand why we're at this war it was a series I st- of tra- okay i learned about world war one more than once in school because you know Every school, every district, every state has things in a certain order. Well, World War One's one I learned about a couple of times. I'm still not sure why anybody was fighting other than like the two countries that were involved with uh, that. Treaties, uh, growing like, you know, basically weapons technology and senses of nationalism. Like, yes, we can win this war. It'll be good for us. It's like, but we have we have nothing to do with it. Why are we going? Because well, guns! We signed a treaty because, you know, this country declared war on this country, but we're allies of this country, so we have to declare war on this country, which means Germany declared war on us, and it was just, it was a quagmire. And during all of this time, news was able to travel faster than ever, so even though, like, you know, the fighting was thousands of miles away, you would still get daily updates about the tolls of the dead, and the fighting, and just how many thousands of people died to gain 50 feet of a muddy field in Belgium. What's the difference between Dadaism and Surreal? It's very similar. It's like a it's like a subsect of surrealism. Right. And is Dadaism basically stealing somebody else's art and then changing it slightly? Oh, we'll get into that. Okay. <laughs> is you're this, just okay. like you're jumping is ahead this, of me. Is this Dadaism? That's surrealism. Okay, because I thought I thought that was she is um it's the painting of the man with the apple floating in front it of says his face. Dadaism underneath it. Eh, it kind of is. There's something I remember reading a book that was about this and like how you didn't want the guy to come out from behind the apple. What book was that? I think that was the magicians, but it was the branch. Floating in front of his face. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Good for you. Listen to this librarian. Which, by the by, the way, um, some of you might notice similarities between the environment that produced Dadaism and, like, you know, the say, for instance, the current twenty-year-long war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Yes, that is still happening. That's still happening. And we're not sure why we're there and no real gains have happened the entire time. That's really, imagine that, but on a much larger scale and much closer to home. Well, I mean, for Europeans and Americans anyway. So the artists protested what they saw as a world gone mad with their art. And it got weird. Like, (laughs) 
for office reference number two, Gabe's Theater of the Unsettling Weird. Oh my god, I love, I hate Gabe as a character, but I gotta give him uh, Cinema of the Unsettling. Yep. Uh, it was, it's like the boat scene from Willy Wonka. Yeah. You are unsettled. Uh, and But feel free to look up these pictures, but uh, I'm really good at describing stuff, so I don't <laughs> think you'll need me to. You'll need to. Yeah, just listen to his words. Guys. Listen to me paint word pictures with my mouth. So if we're going to talk about Dada, we're, we're going to have to talk about the big name in it, who was Marcel Duchamp. He was a French narrative French-American painter and sculptor. And Duchamp is considered right up there with Picasso and Matisse and informing art in the early 20th century. He just created a lot of it, especially in the area of conceptual art, which was just kind of asking questions of what is art? What is art? He That is exactly the question he was asking. And if we're going to talk about his most famous Dadaist painting, well, it's not even a painting, it's a sculpture. And he made kind of famous this thing called ready-mades, which... I, to guess the best describe them, I'll have to go into his 1917 statue, Fountain. Okay. Now- Is it a pile of sponges? No. Okay. Let fountain me. is a white porcelain urinal turned on its side that he purchased at a plumbing supply store that then he signed R. Mutt 1917. So, oh God, what, wasn't there a guy who just bought an invisible painting and now he's being, uh, the painter is being sued because he stole somebody else's idea? Oh, it's... The, yeah. No, but didn't this just happen? Yeah, this just happened. And then there's somebody suing saying that his art was stolen, like his, his this was his um, intellectual property, yeah. this art was. So his ready-mades were just found objects that he would purchase or just find and just say, this is art. Look at its form. It's got like, all the hallmarks of art. So like everything is rent, everything is art. Everything is art. And now the original of this was actually lost at some point, point, but art museums have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars making replicas of it. Like there's currently 16 of them and one is even at the Tate Museum. There are 16 toilets? There are 16 replica toilets with R. Mutt signed on them. So they just went to Home Depot. They bought 16 no, toilets. They didn't and just they... buy toilets. They couldn't find no one could find out exactly what model and make of urinal he used did he like scrape that off because it's all it's all in there no no they've lost the original they're not sure what he used uh. so they had to use photos to sculpt these urinals so they could have exact replicas of this now when things are replicas are they still art i would say yeah if something is a clone is it still a sheep yes we were literally just talking we about were just this. talking about this <laughs> So yeah, he would do these ready-mades, and he he submitted this one to the inaugural exi- exi- exhibition at the Grand Central Palace, which was a New York City exhibition hall. Um, and they couldn't reject it from being in this show because he paid the fee to have it in there. So it wasn't in the main hall, but it was on exhibit there. And critics had opinions, um, good and bad. Some said that he was just making a statement that art is something you piss on and was being very provocative with this. Others like, this is just a toilet. And some people were like saying that some people loved it. They said, look at its gentle flowing curves. It's like a Renaissance Madonna or a sitting Buddha statue. And sometimes someone even mentioned it's erotic curvature. Actually, can you imagine being the kind of person who can see the world that way? Where it's like, I see the value in this beyond its function. I see like somebody put time and effort into making this urinal and inventing this urinal and making it as both functional and visually appealing as possible, as opposed to just having a hole in the ground, which would be just as functional. Yeah. 
Like, there actually is something to being able to see yeah, the world that way. I appreciate it. It's like, you see the similar kind of thing with uh, the Bauhaus movement, in which they would make functional things that were also aesthetically pleasing, like, you know, furniture and stuff. It's like, yeah. What movie was it that we watched where the art kept, like, killing people? Uh, that was Velvet Buzzsaw. Right. Yeah. That's art. And there was even a lot of discussion about what he meant with our mutt, because that wasn't his name. Uh, there's a German word of Armut that means poverty. There's also a uh, popular comic strip at the time that was Mutt and Jeff. So this might technically be some of the first fan art, if that was referring to the comic strip Mutt and Jeff. M-U-T-T? M-U-T-T. And then just the letter R? Yeah. R dot Mutt. What was his name? Marcel Duchamp. Okay. And yeah. Uh, but Duchamp actually said the R stood for Richard, which was kind of like almost Karen in for French at the time. It was just like kind of like a rich individual with yeah. a Richard. Okay. That's kind of something to remember too, is he was, was he French or French American? French American. Okay. Cause Ri Richard was, I, I feel like Dick has been around for a long time. I should, yeah. I should look up the origins of Dick and when Richard became Dick, because that could actually be something interesting here. Maybe yeah. we've cracked it. Yeah. And of course, you know, uh, Duchamp also made, bought, placed uh, lots of other ready-mades, like a bicycle wheel that was on a stool, which he would spin and say, look at it. It's spinning. It's art. I love him. Or a snow shovel. Or there was actually one that was just a bottle dry dryer, which um, replicas, again, have been sold for lots of money because they found they actually able to find what model this was. And museums will hunt this thing down. It's like, it's Which the same. Which one is this? It's a bottle dryer. What's a bottle dryer? It's basically like, imagine a Christmas tree, but made of like pegs. Oh, I've seen these. You can, you can find them at estate sales and vintage stores. Yeah. If you can, uh, if you can find the exact model he used, which still exists, museums will buy them for tons of money. Okay, Austin. There was an auction recently where one sold Austin, for hundreds of thousands. We need to start looking for estate sales because I've seen those at estate sales around here. Now, I'm not saying it's that, that one. Yeah. But also they look cool. We should just have them anyway. Yeah. And by the way, the original was lost um, when uh, Duchamp was out of town and his sister uh, threw it away thinking it was garbage. <laughs> no, it's not that she didn't know it was his art. She just thought his art was garbage. <laughs> Who knows? And uh, Duchamp, he didn't just do sculptures. He also did um, some, some painted work in which he uh, stenciled a mustache and a goatee on a print of the Mona Lisa. Oh, yeah. I saw that when I was just looking yeah. at pictures. And then he inscribed the letters L H. O-O-Q, which when spelled out in French, Trump kind of sounds like a pun that sounds similar to, she wears hot pants. <laughs> so he's like a very, biz he's like a twist, like Banksy is like a twist on this guy in a way. Yeah, oh yeah, you, you'll see, again, like, this is why Maureen reminded me of this. We still, this was, we still don't know who Banksy is, right? Still don't know. There's people have theories, but I also don't follow fine art enough to know who Banksy's, they're talking about. Okay, uh, I don't mind saying this. I hate art museums. Austin knows I hate art museums. Yeah. I've been to the MoMA and I was oh. just staring at it. I'm like, why? Why? Why are these? It didn't help that my blood sugar was extremely low the whole time. The only one I found interesting was a guy who took a slide, like a microscope, microscope slide, put it on every inch of his body bit by bit and took a photo of it. So it was like you're looking at this whole wall that was just inch by inch of some dude's body. And like, I thought that was interesting. But other things I'm like, there was one, it was God, probably 10 by six feet. It was a photo of a sidewalk and not even a whole sidewalk, a close up photo of the cement in a sidewalk that, that was sold for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Huh. I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong field. Yeah. But yeah, so Duchamp would do stuff like this. It was... Like but he still had a message with stuff that he would stay very clearly with his artwork. So it wasn't purely abstract. There was logic behind it. And other artists did kind of 
similar things to this, but tried to like abstract things further. Like uh, they uh, viewed like their art was on themes of like, like this war is turning men into machines. We're just part of this big machine. We're nothing more than cogs and we need to stop being parts of this machine. And so they would make art more like mechanical drawings of machines that didn't make sense. Or uh, one artist actually used prosthetic limbs in their art. Yeah, which, I've seen by the this. way, That's cool. was a booming industry during World War One. And like one one iconic piece was the new man, which was a mannequin head with just various stuff attached to it, like machines and found objects, with just this against this mannequin head, just showing you know how man is becoming inhuman. We're okay, becoming like, in machines. a weird way. This is the kind of art that I like. I like the stuff that you look at. Like, and there's things like that's a toilet on its side. Seriously, mm-hmm. you're getting paid for this. But then there's the things where they like clearly put thought into where each cog is going to go. And you can tell they have a point, even if I can't figure it out yet, yeah. which is why I can't bring myself to have a hundred percent hatred of cats because I look at the art part of it. And I'm like, I can see it. But I look at the overall thing. I'm like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> yeah. One artist actually tried to remove himself from art as much as he could by simply randomly cutting uh, ran- just random shapes out of paper and then dropping them then gluing them where they fell. This is kind of like a precursor to Jackson Pollock doing the splatter painting. Yeah, there are also some things where I'm like, I can, if, <laughs> here's yeah. the thing, guys, uh, unless it's a prop situation where I'm like creating something that needs to be a certain way, if I can do it, I kind of assume it's not art. Kind of like if I can do it, I kind of assume it's not a sport. <laughs> but he was trying to as move intention from his work as much as possible so it didn't have like biases in it. He just wanted art in its purest form with as little hand of the artist in it as possible. So he wanted to make money for doing literally nothing. He wanted to make art, but without having like his own biases be a part of it. Did he get paid for this? Yeah. So he wanted to get paid for doing nothing. Yeah. But in a very specific way. Oh, one artist actually just nailed a stuffed monkey, like a, like a, not like a taxidermy monkey, but a stuffed monkey to a wall and simply called it a portrait of Cezanne. I've seen this one. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. But my favorite stuff from this movement was not the visual art because this is a podcast it was something called sound poems Uh uh-huh and just let me read you an excerpt from one here um it's called karawane uh train of the elephants by hugo ball let me start jolly fanto bambla oh folly bambla grossiga mpfa habla horum egia goramen Higo, blo, iko, rusla, huju. It, it just goes on like this. Twas brillig and the slyly toads. <laughs> and it's like Dr. Seuss on acid. It, well, I mean, that's... Would would we then consider um, uh, the guy here at Alice in Wonderland? Would we then consider him to be a Dadaist? He definitely had a lot of surreal stuff in his. Because, like, just, he had the... Uh, like, just... That poem that I just started. The Jabberwocky. I, the Jabber... Yeah, the Jabberwocky. Um... But I was I was expecting like a screeching sound to come out of you. I was expecting it to be like sound poems that were just random noises. Oh, but th- there is one line in it that I didn't want to get to because it was like 50 lines down. It was this, this one line. Are you ready for it? This is the best one in it. Ooh, 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 ooh. Just the letter U with the little long symbol over it four times. See, I was here like imagining... That's that's pretty close to what I was imagining. What what is that song where it says I think it says clarinet screams and they're not sure if they mean that it's the clarinet making a screaming noise or if the clarinet stands up and screams. <laughs> 
And and it was not uncommon for these poems to be accompanied by music, which was just people banging on a piano or hitting a drum randomly or just making screeching noises on a clarinet and frantic dances. One described it as like like a belly dancer moving, but only with his butt. Okay, so as a former theater teacher and to be honest, a former English teacher, I apparently have taught a lot of Dadaism. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's got this 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 movement has a long reach to it. And they wanted to create total art, which was art for all of the art senses. Art for toads. And the experience is not great. Like, I, I saw some videos of recreations of it. Um, I'm sorry, are you telling me that the 4D Honey, I Shrunk the Kids I saw as a child is not real art? No, I'm afraid not. Or it is. We don't serve your kind at this bar. We only serve strings. <laughs> I'm afraid not. Oh, no, we don't serve strings. Yep. Now, critics, of course, were divided. Uh, some said that this takes no skill, has no thought, or produces anything of value. Like the guy who just drops shit on the ground and then yep. puts some glue on it. Yep. Others loved it. It was absurd and really was well thought out and genius. There was one criticism of this that I found that was pretty valid and not just like, I don't like it. It was that the intentional absurdity and art without meaning was certainly assigned a lot of meaning by the artists because they were all radicals who are anti-war, anti-authority, and they assigned all of these anti-war, anti-authority things to their art without purpose, meaning that their art actually had a purpose and it was intended as a protest against war, nationalism, authority, and dehumanization. So it actually had a purpose, so it couldn't truly be purely absurd and pointless. So if I just throw some paint at something and then I tell someone it has a meaning, how much money can I make? It depends. Fine art is weird now. Yeah, that's the thing, too. It's like, how do you get to be an artist? Like, you know, what I, mean? like, I, I actually like have some training in all of this. It's and it's luck, a good agent and hype. Yeah, it's like something. And like, I like Banksy because Banksy, I, I feel like Banksy was just doing it because they liked it and it just started to get noticed. Yeah. Granted, could just be a really good PR team. It probably is. Also, what do you think? Banksy, one person, more than one person. I think it's a team of people that might have one person leading it, but it's not one. Just kind, one person. Kind of like Shakespeare art. is one person, but there was a whole team that would help him revise. Yeah. Kind of like how Paul Shear wrote The Artist, but there's really a large team writing it. Wrote The Artist? Uh, the The Office. Oh, what? Wasn't, oh, never mind. Who's the guy who, who's the guy with like the showrunner of The Office? Um, Michael Shore? I, I'd have to look it up. Look what you're oh, doing. Oh, no. I haven't listened to Office Ladies in a few weeks, Austin, because <gasps> I have been stuck on uh This Paranormal Life and Beach Too Sandy because I have in, in, I've, guys, let me just put it this way. I have needed some funny in my life. And if you need some funny slash spooky, listen to This Paranormal Life. If you need funny slash I hate humanity, Beach Too Sandy, Water Too Wet. Yeah. Oh, God. I can't listen to too much Beach Too Sandy, Water Too Wet because I answer a lot of these questions at work and it just makes me sad. <laughs> so, yeah, the Dadaist movement, like, kind of met its end around 1920. But there's a, still a heavy influence of this in modern art, like performance art. For example, when Barney did his little art thing in How I Met Your Mother, where he would just spit water in Lily's face or dance around like the Tin Man... I am right. Envy. Yeah. The robot was about to learn to love. Yep. Or abstract expressionism, which is just whatever you want it to be. Like, that is just like the catch-all for, is this art? I don't know. It's the pile of sponges or the, I painted this wall blue. It's art. After you blew yourself or when you're sad. <laughs> exactly. What does it mean? Or uh, installation art, which is... Just like we've made a thing and we're just going to put it here 
and we might not tell people we're doing it. <laughs> Isn't that like, I feel like that's what magicians do. Yep. And of course, you know, uh, found art, which is exactly the same thing as ready-mades, but they just still act like it's original, even though it's over a hundred years old at this point. Mm-hmm. And of course, other like other things like Monty Python, there's a lot of absurdity in that, definitely influenced by this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Green, who, um, look him up, kids. And then feel shame in the taste of your elders. Daddy, would you like some sausages? Daddy, would you like some sausages? It's just so bizarre. And he also had the Tom Green show. It was not the Green Tom show. Yeah. It was, though, his favorite show because it was his show. Yeah, Tom Green. Oh, my God. Looking back at Tom Green, it's like, what the hell was wrong with us? Um, Although he actually did a really good, like, um, way because he had testicular cancer. And so when he came back to his show, he did a song called uh, Squeeze Your Balls. And I remember because he he found it, I believe, while he was masturbating, but he could have been at the doctor. Who the fuck knows? But he was singing a song with his guitar. It was, hey, kids, squeeze your balls. Love your balls. Tease your balls. Hey, kids, squeeze your balls so you don't get cancer. Because it's like a boob cancer. You feel a lump. But they don't tell you guys that. They tell us women, like, check your check your boobs. Yeah, he. But when you touch down there, you know, you're doing the naughty thing and God doesn't like you anymore. You don't do the devil's handshake, young men. But it's like it's keeping you from getting cancer, at least bad cancer. Yeah. And of course, Maureen. But hers was too anchored in reality to be truly considered Dadaist. And it was very clear in what she's saying and like obvious and there was not a lot of thought in her art. It was just for attention. And frankly, it was so obvious she might have put labels on it like it was some type type of political cartoon. Austin, she was just taking a leap of faith. 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 (laughs) The only thing to do is jump. Might as well jump. He's already forgotten the song, but he's, he's complaining about it. I, oh, I, I'm trying to get it out of my head, but it just keeps popping up. Like It's because I play it while he sleeps. Show it. So to summarize a little bit, Dadaist is an absurd art that was kind of a mirror of just what it was a disturbing and like absurd time in humanity in which we were really able to just completely wipe ourselves out for the first time in history. Because mm-hmm. like, even like the worst wars before this, like it was bad, but it wasn't apocalyptic bad. And yeah. this was apocalyptic like, bad. Like war is never a great thing, mm-hmm. but this is the whole world is not just watching, but involved. Except for yeah. Switzerland's like, please leave us alone. Yeah. Um, and we were smart enough to not sign treaties saying we'd fight for mm-hmm. you. So, and it's like again, if there was a battle, you'd hear about it the next day, halfway across the world. Meanwhile, now we hear about them as they're happening. Yeah, except we've all forgotten that the war is still going on because George Bush told us we had won. Remember, we won it. He, hey, he didn't just say it; he declared it. But does he do Dada art? What kind of art does he do, George? Uh, he it's does hyper, portrait. It's he hyper does... realistic, isn't it? Not it's, quite hyper. It's just realistic. It's a, it's a. I think he has a stylized style of portraiture. Okay, I'll I'll give him this. He's good. Yeah, he's not a bad artist. It's like, it, but the poor man. Like you look at him, you're like, oh, you're just. It broke you. Yeah, he. It's, he did not handle the weight of this, a lot of decisions. He, he had didn't to make want to president. be president. Yeah. Neither did Kennedy. But that's an episode yeah. for another day. So yeah, that was Dadaist, this kind of short-lived art form that informed a lot of what we see now as like the art that people make fun of in TV shows. Pile of sponges. Pile of sponges. And then there's always that guy. You're you're walking through it so crowded. And there's always that guy like yelling "moo" because you're a bunch of can- cattle. Well, if you don't like it, why do you keep doing it? Sorry, like, we haven't had a Ross reference yet, though. It's just been Chandler and Monica. Chandler and Monica. Ross doesn't belong in this. He's too serious. Except for maybe Pivot. Pivot? 
So, and are you ready for some questions? Actually, I was just thinking about though, Ross is Dadaist art. Yeah. He is reality, but slightly to the side. Yeah. It's like he doesn't make Ross sense. Ross is part of all of this. Yeah. Ross is all. All is Ross. That's unfortunate. There were some questions, but yes. in true Dadaist style. He's just going to ra- say random sounds at me. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> also, not, they're not going to be questions about what's on the test. It'll be questions in general. Oh, questions about like the u- life, the universe, and everything? Yeah. Okay. So. Um, will sound po- poems be included in a poetry unit? Actually, if I had known about these when I was forced against my will to teach poetry, I would have included that. Yeah. Will the 16 replicas of a signed urinal um, in reputable art museums be on the test? What class is this? Math. You know, I could actually see an argument for this being a math class because you would have to, um, since you don't have the original, you would have to look at the images and try to figure out the exact dimensions of every piece of it. Yeah. So yes, I will give it that. Yep. Will the, the societal pressures that created the absurdity of the Dadaist movement uh, that are very prevalent in current society, and this could signal a revival of absurd art, be on the test? In history or psychology class, absolutely. But what about in a cooking class? Well, I mean, probably not, but it would be interesting to look at how food is influenced by the culture you're in, not just what you have. Ooh. And why we made things out of jello that did not even made out of jello. Yeah. And finally, uh Bor Gip Kowali Paradu Ni Um I think that would probably only be taught in orchestra class. That's true. I did. That was a poem that I wrote just now called The Silence of the Last Cello. So, yeah, exactly right. (laughs) All right. Austin, I just looked at the timer and he's like, I talked for as long as Maddie. I know. Um, so today, uh, the day that this comes out, we're recording this on Sunday. So on the day this comes out, though, is the day that Jeff Bezos goes out into space and hopefully stays there. Just but kick him right out the airlock. I will give whoever does that like five bucks and I've got a gift card that you can totally have. Yeah. Wally, Wally, we're talking to you because Wally is why I'm talking today. Ooh. So on Jeff Bezos's flight, there's gonna be Jeff Bezos, Bezos's brother, a pilot, an 18 year old who I don't want to say anything mean about an 18 year old who's saying he's excited. He wants to get kids excited about science. But let's just say he's got a very specific look from history books about him. That was not from World War One. Oh. So hopefully he's a very lovely kid. I'm not going to say anything bad about him because I know nothing about him. And maybe he just wants to go to space and has a very rich father, which is the case. He has a very rich father. Yeah. Um, but then there's the last one, who is Wally Funk. So Wally Funk is in her 80s. And she has been trying to get to space since she was in her 20s. Whoa. Now, this isn't just some woman who's like, I'm going to get a big old ladder or I'm just dreaming about this. This is a woman who has worked towards this since she was in her 20s. And she actually paid to go on Richard Branson's. And I don't know if she paid to go on the inaugural one or just paid to go on one in general. But Richard Branson went and he didn't take Wally. That son of a bitch. I'm mad at him because... You should be mad at him. Wally here. I'm not actually going to talk just about Wally. And I'm actually going to be talking about this this week and next. If I had known, because I had no idea when Bezos was going to space. If I had known about this last week, I would have covered this last week and then this week. But today, on the day that Jeff Bezos and Wa- goes to space and hopefully Wally opens the airlock, kicks him and his brother out, the 18-year-old can stay. I have no beef with him. Yeah. I have no beef with the pilot. He's, he's 18. His brain's not done cooking yet. Yep. Not until he's 25. And, you know, he could be a perfectly lovely kid. Oh, yeah. 
Um, and he's from the Netherlands, I think. So he very yeah. well could be a perfectly lovely kid who just wanted to go to space, which is cool. Um, she kicks him out the airlock. Wally comes back with the pilot and the kid. And she's like, I don't know what happened. I'm good with that. Also, Aliens I feel like, took him. I feel like nobody is trained for this except for Wally and probably the pilot. Yeah. But I'm talking today and next week about the Mercury 13. So remember, the first group of astronauts were called the Mercury 7. Mm-hmm. This is the Mercury 13. Ooh. It is a separate group of people. And they were not dubbed the Mercury 13 at the time. They were dubbed that later by the media. Because you got to have a name for any group of people who are striving towards a pretty awesome goal. The Mercury 13 were women who got together. No, not, not together. Who uh, were volunteered or volunteered themselves in some like it's it's I'll get to it to train to become astronauts during the time of the space race. What? This is going to be a two parter. And as you all know, nobody women weren't not weren't allowed to become astronauts until well after the space race. So you can kind of guess what happened with these 13 and the fact that Wally has not gotten to go yet. But the Mercury 13, a lot of my information this week and next week comes from the book, The Mercury 13 by Martha Ackman. I do have other sources, but I did want to plug that book, The Mercury 13, Martha Ackman. And hopefully you'll understand as I go through, while even though Jeff Bezos has you know, factory workers working in a room that feels like our podcast studio does. Like we're both sitting here sweating. Yeah. And it's like the, oh God, guys, right now, as we record the Frito-Lay plant is on strike. Don't buy PepsiCo or Frito-Lay stuff at the moment. Yeah. Wait until the strike is over. Wait until the strike is over. It's bad. Uh, So you might guess that we are not big fans of Jeff Bezos for how he treats his, uh, especially his lowest level workers. And by lowest, I don't mean anything negative. I mean, as in least paid. Yeah. But we don't have a problem with Wally because Wally is finally getting her chance. And honest to God, you've been waiting for 60 plus years. You fucking take that chance. So fingers crossed for Wally uh, the day that you're hearing this. So this, guys, I it's a two-parter because it was really hard to get into it without getting to some of the history of NASA. I tried to get out of that too much because maybe that's another topic for another time, but you can't do it without it. So just jumping right in. President Eisenhower signed the National Aeronautics and Space Act, which created NASA in what I have down as 19,857. I'm assuming I meant 1957 because we were afraid that other countries, especially Russia or the Soviets, would beat us in the space race. While the military tried to get control of NASA, Eisenhower decided it would be a civilian organization, but still a federal agency. So somehow it's both at the same time. The scientists, they were like, they were like, okay, we'll bring in scientists since we can't, we're not doing military. We want to have scientists. They were like, we don't want to do this. Space flight is stupid. Like, we like we're scientists. We have to learn about stuff before we do it. And you just want to put us into a basically a large cannon and shoot us into space. They were. Oh, there was one that said something along the lines of races are for athletes, not for thinkers. (laughs) Um, So they kept saying, we need to be given time to research this. We like you guys, you guys have given us the whole solar system here. Let us learn about the solar system and how it all works. We don't want to be part of this race. And they were like, fuck you. You're going to send people to space. And they're like, but they're going to die. So, well, if they die, don't we lose the race? And there was just silence while they hung up. You know how it goes. Um, It was ultimately a matter of national pride and pressure from the general public. So they had to focus on it. 
Eisenhower told them that astronauts initially should come from a ton of different professions. He wanted doctors up there. He wanted engineers up there. He wanted people from like all different kinds of professions who would see things from different angles. Like, you know, the sideways urinal, people who would see it in different ways. That's what initially he wanted. But then he's like, nah, military test pilots. You had to be a military test pilot. And you also had to have a certain level of education or be able to like prove your exceptional merit in just being one or the other but you well in just being a, spe- a test pilot in part it was to narrow the pool though because if you're looking at anybody who has these abilities that like basically anybody who's proved themselves super smart you've got hundreds of thousands of people you've got way less when you've got only military test pilots so the thing is with military test pilots women couldn't do it they were Women at the time, remember, this is 30 years after Amelia Earhart. We've talked about other famous female pilots on the show before. There are tons that I think I mentioned at some point how many, but there are tons of female pilots, but they are not allowed to be military test pilots. And then on top of that, there are military test pilots of color at the time, but very, very few, which ultimately meant we're not racist asterisk for the first astronaut program. Uh, What they did not expect is that not every jet test pilot thought this was worth their time. That was actually how they put this. It's, um, I'm here to test planes so that we don't die in war. And you want to put me in a tiny capsule and send me up to a place where I'm likely to explode. I have less of a chance of dying if I'm actively in the military. So I'm going to do that. Because since this wasn't an officially a military assignment, they couldn't make anybody do it. Um... And like the scientists, they were like, you want us to just run a stupid ass race when there's actually important things to be doing? No, we're not fucking doing that. And then they also said, wait, you're planning on sending monkeys before you send us? So we're just, it's going to be monkeys and then us. So it's comparing us to monkeys? No, I'm good. I'm not doing this. Which they were not expecting. They were not expecting. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're testing this on animals first? That's very unethical. No, they don't want to be compared to monkeys. No. But they, were not, they weren't expecting test pilots to say no. Um, but ultimately, they found the Mercury 7, who were Malcolm Scott Carpenter, Leroy G. Cooper Jr., John Glenn Jr., Gus Grissom, Walter Shira Jr., Alan Shepard Jr., and Deke Slayton. Um, so many juniors. Yes, that was actually something I made a note of because another junior is about to happen. Um, well, he actually is uh, the second, which oh, means he's classy. Uh, he's the best. You're going to love him. So those are the Mercury 7 right there. And I actually said to Austin while I was researching, I'm like, what do you think these guys thought about the idea of female astronauts? And I got an answer with a few of them, at least. The other ones I haven't gotten that I haven't finished the book yet, to be honest. But like we know, like we all know who John Glenn was. Uh, hope we should have learned about Alan Shepard. A few of these guys, like, it sounds like some of them were pretty chill with it. Who knows about the other ones? So when they introduced these seven to the public was the NASA Life Sciences Committee Chairman, Dr. William Randolph Randy Lovelace the second. Ooh. So you had to be a junior. Randy Lovelace the second. Randy kicks ass. And Brigadier General Donald Flickinger, who also kicks some ass. While they acted like they were super excited, and I'm sure they were, they both secretly thought that we should be using women. Uh, they understood how these rockets worked. The less weight on board meant that they were easier to fly and were going to take less fuel. And since women, on average, weigh less than men, that automatically makes them a better fit for this. They also 
believed that there is that women could pass the physical and mental exams that these two guys had created. These were the people who were like, I'm going to make the astronaut tests. And they had no reason to believe that women couldn't pass them. The exact same tests with no modifications. They had no reason to think this. In fact, uh, Randy Lovelace's wife was interviewed and she goes, no, that was a real thing. Like from the day we got together back in the 20s, he never treated me like I was a woman. I was his equal. And back in those days, you were not his equal. And he told me like women should be in space. Women should be doing everything men are doing. You guys are completely capable. This is just how these what these guys truly believed in a world where women we women were um, housewives. And that was it. But that's actually an argument that gets used later. Housewives spend most of their days doing nothing, so they're better able to handle boredom. And space likes a lot of boredom, so maybe we should send housewives into yeah. space. And like now, I'm not saying that housewives' jobs aren't difficult, but that's how they stereotyped it. So they actually used that as a twist. <laughs> is um, just like, well, I mean, they're so used to being bored because we make they, them stay home all day. I've been thinking about that more too. It's like women generally handle like nausea better than men, which like you know, space flight is just a bunch of throwing up. Yeah, since none of these people have trained for Jeff Bezos' thing, I'm expecting there to be a lot of vomit. And just like, and like generally a higher pain threshold too. Oh yeah, women should be astronauts. Yes. Also, fun fact, uh, one of the things I didn't, I'm not going to get into too much, but they were like, well, you know, we can't make spacesuits for you. The spacesuits are made for men. And they were like, "Um, you made them for dogs. (laughs) But also spacesuits, pressurized suits were actually not necessarily invented, but like Early ones were created by a dude who based the entire thing on bras. <laughs> he was like, bras are one of the best constructed things out there. So I'm going to base this entire suit on bras. Can you imagine if we had told these guys in the 1950s, you're wearing a suit of bras? It's like, that explains the lace. <laughs> Actually, I feel like a couple of them would, would have just done that. I'm like, I feel like that would be a John Glenn joke right there. Yep. That explains the lace. I mean, I might be confusing him with a couple other people. No, John but... Glenn definitely cracked some jokes. Mm-hmm. Which one punched somebody? Was that uh, Neil that Armstrong? W- uh, Buzz Aldrin. Buzz Aldrin. Do you want to yell at the moon with Buzz Aldrin? Yes, I do, Buzz Aldrin. Buzz Aldrin. Um, so one of the big stereotypes that these guys had to fight against was the idea that having a period made women stupid. For one week every month, women become very, very stupid. They can't remember things. They can't function in society. For one week a month, women are so distractible and emotional and stupid that they can't handle spaceflight. And there's no way for us to predict when these periods are going to happen. So we can't time our spaceflight around it. Um, I'd like to remind you guys, early on in the show, I did an episode on birth control. Birth control existed at this point, and something a lot of you guys, especially males, may not know is birth control can turn off your period. It can just make you not have it. And they could have just used that if they were that worried about it. (laughs) It doesn't sound like they were using their thinking brains for this. I thought that that was the women, though, who didn't use their thinking braids because they were bleeding out of their butt because men didn't know anything about bodies, which we'll go into in a minute. (laughs) Plus, the Soviets, the Soviets were actually considering sending women. In fact, on a trip to Russia, Lovelace found that not only were the Russians significantly less prejudiced against women, 70% of their doctors were female, meaning us not letting women become doctors, them going, can you pass medical school? So we've got this country that we're trying to fight with who's willing to send the best possible person to space where we're like, got to have a penis or you can't go to space. Yeah, Penises like, let you fly. It's true. It's it's what you use to 
like you've got the rudder, the pitch, the yaw, and like something else that you have to you have to steer that with your penis. But that's okay. It's how you find your testicular cancer. Yeah. Well, then we have Jerry Cobb. Jerry is one. Um, I believe it's short for Geraldine. I forgot to write it down. She was a record-setting pilot who agreed to secretly be tested by Lovelace and Flickinger at Lovelace's foundation rather than at NASA. And she was as close to perfect as any, any candidate could have been. The press got hold of the details eventually, which I'll talk about, and called her America's first woman astronaut, which is incorrect on many levels. Uh, not And not just because she was never an astronaut. She wasn't even the first woman to be tested, which I'm going to talk about here in a second. Um, but she did pass these tests and she had a secret at this point because this is right after the Mercury 7. Another 12 women were about to start being tested. More on them later. But because while all this was going on, Ruth Nichols was actually being tested by the Air Force to see if women could handle spaceflight. Ruth Nichols was 20 years older than the oldest of the Mercury 7. So she is not a spring chicken because the oldest, I believe, was John Glenn, I think, who was 37 at the time. One of them was 37 and she was 58. But she was a kick-ass pilot and had been for a very long time. Flickinger was putting her through astronaut testing. She got through a lot of things the men couldn't handle. Hundreds of men were tested before they got down to seven. She went through these things like she got through the isolation chamber, which made men go insane and start becoming violent. And she was like, oh, yeah, that was kind of boring. Uh, she does not hold the record for the longest time in astronaut training in there. I actually think that was Wally, but I'll have to double check. <laughs> but she was there for hours. If you've ever used an isolation tank, I can't imagine being there for hours. Um, they're awesome, though, guys. They're so great. Um, she also passed every single other test given to her, including the centrifuge thing. Despite being oldest and the oldest astronauts by two decades, when she presented all of this to the Air Force, she was like, I'm excited. I passed everything. I'm going to get to go to space. They're going to let me be an astronaut. They said, um, you have a vagina, though. Um, legit, they said, these are the doctors who work for the Air Force. We don't know how women's bodies work. And I'm not making this up. This is what she was told. We don't know how women's bodies work. Therefore, we can't send you to space. What? And then further... They said, we spent 20 years studying how men's bodies work for this purpose. It'll take, like, logically, it will take another 20 years to understand how women's bodies will work. Um, We've got, like, three parts that are different than you guys. Everything else pretty much the same. Yeah. And, I mean, it shouldn't take 20 years to figure out just a few different organs, because we still have, like, kidneys and shit. Wait, women have kidneys? Yeah. I gotta write this Usually stuff down. two of them. Two? Sometimes we can have one. Sometimes we can have three if we had an extra one put in. Sometimes you can have one of those super kidneys where two are connected. <gasps> just like Whoa. men. Man, I'm learning so much today. So, yeah, this is the 1950s, and they are admitting, admitting they don't know how women's bodies work. They told her those words. <laughs> and she was like, so you're openly telling me you're bad at your job. Cool. They also said that women couldn't handle this because it's so emotional and women can't handle this level of emotion. But women are also too emotional. And she's like, which one is it? Um, one scientist said, and I quote, economically, the cost of putting women in space is prohibitive, strictly an luxury item we can ill afford. And he went on to say that women are only 85% as physiologically efficient as men, and women couldn't handle the effort and motivation it would take to handle stress or make sound judgments in emergencies. Remember how we've always been the ones giving birth, <laughs> watching the kids, helping others give birth? The men come back from war, and who do they want cleaning them up? 
like when for since the beginning of time, women have been the one handling emergencies. Men have been the one causing them. Yeah. Oh my god. Even like in in the in the Viking times, like women ran the household and were in charge of all the stuff at home, and the men would just do their shit and make things hard for the women. Now, women uh, Nichols countered with her own argument on this, though. Uh, she actually did believe, as many men and women did in the fifties, women are more dutiful, capable of self control, and patient. And she's like, okay, um, doesn't that a go completely against your argument that we can't handle we can't handle stressful situations? And b wouldn't this make us better astronauts than men because we're not prone to making impulsive decisions? <laughs> she also pointed out that they had only sent female animals into space thus far. They're like, so you can like you're saying female animals can handle this, but female humans can't. But male animals can't handle this. So the military told Flickinger, because the, uh, she pissed them off, Ruth Nichols would not back down. She's like, no, I passed these tests. I passed them. I passed the test that you guys gave me. I passed them better than some of your astronauts. Fuck you. I'm going to space. So they went to Flickinger and said, you have to stop because she's super mean. <laughs> now, this is the Air Force, not NASA. And he's like, well, fuck this. It goes on and on, but this isn't about all the reasons the military said no. This is how about things how got start how things got started. So Flickinger contacted Lovelace and was like, I will leave the fucking Air Force Research Center to come work for the Lovelace Foundation if you still want women to be astronauts. And Lovelace was like, fuck yes. So Flickinger was like, peace out, bro, and went to go work for the Lovelace Foundation. But uh, meanwhile, though, it's entirely it's entirely civilian based. There is no government funding. So there is no conflict of interest. The taxpayer is not paying for anything they do there. However, Lovelace still works for NASA during this. So he has some pull over there, depending on what happens at his foundation. <laughs> mean, during all of this bullshit where they're arguing about whether or not vaginas can fly, Russian, Russia sent Yuri Gagarin into orbit. So we quickly got Alan Shepard into space because fuck it, let's not worry about whether or not he'll die. <laughs> we were not ready. No. We had no idea if this would work. Alan Shepard was just like, I guess I'm probably going to die today. Uh, tell the people I love, I love them. Tell the people I hate, I hate them. Bye. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how much of this is exaggerated, but I know in uh, Hidden Figures, they were like doing the math equations to like safely get him back into Earth. Like as they were like, it was all on the fly. Alan Shepard safely returned to Earth after 15 minutes in a suborbital sub level, proving that we could at least get a one-person rocket off the ground. <laughs> Can you imagine how fucking scared he must have been? Yeah. Like, I don't know if they drew straws. I don't know if he volunteered, because I'm not talking about the men today. But Alan Shepard, he did it. I can't believe you're not talking about the men. Why don't we talk more well, I'm, about I'm men's I'm talking history. about Lovelace and Flickinger a lot, but that's because that's they're important. Yeah. Um, Alan Shepard didn't have a whole lot to do with all of this. No. Um, Jerry Cobb, back back to her. She was the one who volunteered with Lovelace and Flickinger to begin with, other uh, other than Ruth. She wasn't able to attend the launch. She was invited, and she wasn't able to attend because she was speaking at a different conference, during which she used her time to detail why it was important that we at least consider female astronauts and chill the fuck out about money being spent to do so. Uh, all the women who are doing this are volunteers. And she's like talking about the Lovelace things that was starting to come out. A little. The timeline on this is really weird, guys. Um, the way some, you know how sources go, they're yeah. trying to tell a narrative rather than like a timeline. But basically, she's like, so, guys, if it's if we test them in private rather than using government funds that are able to prove they can pass these tests, will you let women go to space? And they're like vaginas. 
here's the thing. And she is giving these speeches and she is doing this over and over, trying to convince people that this is something we need to do. Jerry Cobb hated public speaking. She grew up with a pretty bad speech impediment and she hated people. And I don't mean that in a like, oh, I hate people. As in, she stopped going to school. She would leave for school in the morning and then go hang out in a field and then go back home because she hated people. Not because she didn't like to learn. Not even necessarily. She did get big fun for a speech impediment because, you know, people, people. But her dad finally found her, found out what was happening and went out and her dad was like, okay, here's the deal. You have to go to school because if you don't get to go to school, if you don't go to school, you'll never get to have a job where you have to be away from people. You'll just have to be around people all the time. <laughs> her dad like understood like my daughter thinks differently. So I need to reach her differently. Um, like she even tried to go to college for a while uh, and she ended up leaving because she was only allowed to study home economics. And she's like, what the fuck? I don't want to learn to do this. I want to no. fly. I want to fucking fly. So that's how passionately she felt about this, though, was that she was willing to deal with these fears she had to tell people. Additionally, while all this is happening, so we have Ruth Nichols, who, by all for all intents and purposes, if we are classifying people who pass these tests as astronauts, Ruth Nichols is the first female astronaut. There was a magazine called Look Magazine, which had a feature on a pilot named Betty Skelton, who, while she knew for a fact she was not being trained to be an astronaut, she was told this from the beginning. She underwent four months of astronaut training exercises, and she did this around the country, like showing people, like, this is what we're doing. And the ones who traveled with her was somebody named Wally Shearer, Alan Shepard, John Glenn, and Gus Grissom. So some of the astronauts were like, yeah, we like, we're going to go train with her. Fuck you guys. So that, you know, I can't say for sure that that, that that was them showing their support for the idea of female astronauts, but that is what I infer from it. This included the weightlessness maneuvers in the water, even though Betty Skelton didn't know how to swim and she was able to do these. And she even reported that Dr. William Douglas, the physician who was specifically for the astronauts, this is what this guy did for a living. He was the astronaut doctor, believed that women could be better for spaceflight than men. Simply because we were going to be bored as housewives. So if you're already used to having no intellectual stimulation, you might as well go to space where you're going to have no intellectual stimulation for hours and probably just be in the dark. <laughs> so that's like the actual medical opinion. No one really questioned her abilities during all of this. Like the other astronauts like, no, she's capable. There was no question that she was capable of all these things, but she was never considered for it to be an astronaut. But we know they were per for the show saying, oh, maybe someday. But they didn't actually plan on doing anything. I also think it's interesting. Oh, I already mentioned the fact that there, there were male Mercury astronauts on this list. They're, they weren't forced to do this. Like, yeah. if they were, all of them would have been there. Anyway, it sounds like the women secretly involved with the program were the final program, the one that I'm getting into, uh, the Mercury 13. Because of all of this, they were keenly aware of the implications. If they passed, it didn't necessarily mean that they or other women could become astronauts. But it would tell Americans that they were wrong. If they failed, it would confirm all the stereotypes about women, but no pressure. Oh, yeah, that's 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 a very good motivation for me. It's like, oh, I'm not going to do this, but I get to prove somebody wrong. Sign me up. Let's mm -hmm. do this. Mm -hmm. So we're getting back to the Mercury 13. The first of the Mercury 13 was, of course, Jerry Cobb. In fact, she was the Mercury one at the time. There was nobody else. <laughs> The tests done on her and the other women eventually were the same as the men. And just like the men, it wasn't pass or fail. It was compared to the others. Well, there were no other women at the time. So Jerry Cobbs were compared to the Mercury 7's results. To this day, Jerry Cobb is in the top 2% of men, women, or anybody else who has become an astronaut. She never became an astronaut. Ugh. 
spoiler alert, women didn't become astronauts for a long time after this. The people involved with the testing, the ones administering the tests, were told, do not go easy on her. Do not let your brain get in the way. Don't let the stereotypes happen. You push her until she tells you she's done. Jerry Cobb ain't fucking done. Not ever. I didn't hear no bell. The problem is that even with that, the biases crept in. This is not too different from the ones women experience when they go to the doctor today. One doctor even said that they needed to ensure that gynecologists were involved with all of this to make sure a woman would behave the same way on her period as as she would when she was not. Now, I'd like to say Jerry Cobb was not of an age where she would not be having her period, and these tests went over a period of months, so I'd imagine at some points she was bleeding, and she was still passing all of her tests, including the blood tests and shit. So therein lies the problem. Jerry Cobb, in hard numbers, did equally well, if not better than the astronauts who were actually being sent to space. In fact, the only things that she was found lacking, as were put in her book, The Mercury 13, were a slight hearing loss in her left ear, which was not uncommon for pilots of multi-engine planes who sit near large engines, and cold feet. In other words, she was lacking the cold feet that many of the men tested, because there were over 30 of them, ended up having. At no point did she get scared. At no point did she go crazy. She said the worst one was what almost all of them said was the worst part, which is where they basically poured freezing water into your ears to see how long it would take for your brain to go bananas. Like your eyes start rolling around and your equilibrium gets thrown off. And it's more, as she said, most of them said this, it's more a matter of not knowing how much it's going to hurt and when it's going to be over than it is the actual feeling itself. Um, because it feels it feels like your eardrum is going to freeze. That sounds awful. Yeah. So like she's like, that was the worst part. And she still passed it, like, with no problem. Good for her. I mean, not like that's something you can control. It's an, automa- it's an automatic brainstem kind of reaction, but she passed it. So they were looking at the results. And Cobb, she starts to write to, like, the Air Force and NASA and scientists. So, not all of them, but some of the scientists and doctors who looked at the results go, a woman couldn't have passed this. She must be a mutation of a man. <sighs> literally they were saying that she must be a man with some kind of genetic mutation or a woman who is genetically mutated to be more of a man now first of all they're admitting that trans people exist in this point but as far as i can tell jerry never identified as anything other than a woman never felt like anything other than a woman there was no evidence that she was anything other than a woman in fact she had to be naked for a number of these things and I mean, obviously, there's internal, external. I'm not getting into all of the different uh, types of intersex today. But there is no evidence of any of this. This is just what they decided must be the case based on her test scores, despite her repeated blood tests showing average levels of everything that because, you know, sometimes there's like knocked off testosterone, knocked off estrogen. Mm -hmm. Everything was normal. So, yeah, that was what they decided to go with. She couldn't have passed her tests unless she was an aberration of some kind, according to them. Oh, gosh. The Air Force was, uh, she was like, okay, here's my test results. Air Force goes, no girls allowed. NASA, though, was like, all right, uh, you want to come to the Lewis Research Center in Cleveland? It's like, we're not promising anything, but you want to come just check it out? So she let got to go undergo spaceflight simulation training using the Mastiff, which was the gyroscope, which spins riders in three directions at once. So you're like, I don't know how it works, but you're spinning in three directions at once. 
And you, yourself, the spinning person, have to stop it. Unless you lose consciousness, which I assume happens and then they stop it. But you've got like a steering wheel situation that you have to maneuver in a very specific way to stop the machine. She lasted 45 minutes before stopping it. Wow. And she stopped it by choice. She was not spending 45 minutes trying to stop it. She just decided after 45 minutes she was done. And she insisted that NASA photographers be there for this. And there's a photo of her when she stops. She doesn't look like she broke a, got- broke a goddamn sweat. She was totally calm. She said at no point was she afraid. At no point was she afraid of any of this. She's like, I, she's like, I knew I could do it. So I got on there and I did it for 45 minutes. What's the big deal? I could not find any information about how long they make you do this for normally or how long the other astronauts did. I tried. Could not find anything. I can't imagine, though, on your first go, they have you go for more than about five minutes. Like, I'm just watching it. It makes me dizzy after mm-hmm. a minute. So her results, they were still like, not an astronaut. But Lovelace is like, okay, science. We're scientists here. We've got to replicate this to prove it to people. So let's get some other women in here and test them and prove that this is not an anomaly. Prove that women in general can do this. We need to get, like, obviously we can't get thousands, but we can get 10. Let's go for 10. Sorry, something very sad is about to happen. Um, As Jerry Cobb's story started to leak out into the press, and she started becoming known as the first female astronaut, we're forgetting somebody, Ruth. Um, Ruth Nichols, who passed all these tests first, was never mentioned during any of this. And Ruth's Ruth had spent decades as a pilot. She had worked for foundations. At this point, her money is running out. She's 59 years old. She's got really nothing going for her. And she realizes, like, they're not talking about me. I'm not even in this picture. These are the these are people who, like, at least Flickinger was on her team with this. Lovelace wasn't part of that, I don't think. He, he worked for NASA, but this was the Air Force. So she's watching all this happen. She's watching her fame all go to this other person. When anybody should be named the first female astronaut, it's Ruth Nichols. And so her sister remembers her saying, I'm going to go to space. I'm, it's going to happen. I'm going to go to space. I'm going to fly until the day I die. And if that first space flight happens after I die, I'm going to be on it too. So she killed herself. I mean, that's not, that wasn't a direct, like, I said this and then she died. Um, But seeing all this happen, seeing her get left out of the conversation, all of this just culminated in her killing herself. And that's what happens when we tell somebody that you aren't good enough because of the way you were born. When And she did everything. She did everything right. She should have been the first female astronaut. And she wasn't. And I mean, even if the, like, and if the only reason was that you're 59 years old, like, we want you to be a little young. Like, I feel like that would have been fine, even though couple of the guys were too old anyway but they were allowed to go but 59 i can kind of be like mm, you could have some issues that we're not really seeing yet yeah like your heart because at that time they they were only studying men's heart and hearts and assuming that they were the same as women's and men had a lot of heart attacks and still do um there's not really a way for you to squeeze your hearts like your balls so just keep an eye on how you yeah. feel and um, women also heart attack symptoms for women are vastly different than different. those for men yeah so that's what happens when you tell somebody their dreams aren't achievable just because of who oh. they are so that was all going on um so that happened but everything they kept moving that's the end of the bummer part of this one the whole thing's kind of a bummer because these women don't get to become astronauts Mm. and i know like that sounds like a spoiler but you all know this if you paid 30 seconds of attention in class you know this um to make sure that they could prove this though lovelace and cobb began to look at other female pilots they were being tested at roughly the same time, the final 13. They didn't meet each other until 1994. That is how secret this study wow. was. These women didn't know who each other was. They knew there were other women in the study, and that is as far as it went. During Jerry Cobb's initial study, her roommate didn't know what was going on. Her roommate was like, oh, Jerry's gone. Her roommate was a fucking reporter, too. Her roommate <laughs> didn't bother to investigate. She was mm, Jerry's not here. Cool. Jerry's doing Jerry things. Um... 
Now, is this like a roommate roommate or a roommate? As far as I know, it's just a roommate. Okay. Um, granted, as far as I know, she was just a roommate. Like, Jerry Cobb okay. Cop kind of moved around a little bit. Like, cause she, you know, her job by nature was go where you can get get work. And so she lived with this lady named Ivy. Um, to my knowledge, it was just a roommate situation. Okay. I guess I could dig into that more. I didn't really get into the individual women too much with this yet. Because I know it's like we're still dealing with the weird like, oh, yeah, roommates. They've been living together for 20 years. Boy, boy, boy. She had not been living with yeah. them for that long. A um, couple of years. Um, so these women, the 13 didn't meet until 1994 or 10 of them met in 1994. Because remember, this is over 30 years later. The requirements for these female pilots were more than a thousand flight hours. Very hard to get as a woman in the 1950s. Generally, t- early 30s, but they made exceptions in very specific cases. Uh, it is very unlikely that at least three of the male astronauts would have qualified. They were too old, 35 or older. They tended to give those less points, basically. Uh, marital status and number of children were not given much weight, but they were heavy- they were factored in a little bit. Just because they knew that there was this whole issue with uh, people getting distracted by their daily lives. But one of the women that's ultimately chosen had nine kids. Nine kids? Nine kids. I believe they were all still children at this point. I mean, I would want to flee the planet, too. That's too many kids. Um, Her husband was kind of cool. But I'll talk to I'll talk about him next week, too. Um, But her husband was cool. I'm assuming they had a nanny, though, because he was a little busy himself being a U.S. senator. What? Mm-hmm. So she had nine kids. So really, it didn't matter. As long as you could prove to them that this was going to be your focus for as long as it needed to do, your spouse would not be a distraction, your children would not be a distraction. If you could prove that, you were in. You had to be healthy and active. There were no racial restrictions or preferences. You did have to provide that background, but you always have to. Like any form you ever fill out, you have to be like, check the box. Mm-hmm. But they didn't actually have anything on there. You just had to meet the rest of the stuff. Uh, unlike the Mercury 7, there was no test pilot experience or engineering degree required because those were nearly impossible for women to have. Jerry Cobb also was in there to look at the X factor, that thing that you really can't quantify. But she'd been a pilot for a long time. She was a, you know, a racing pilot and like a stomp. she did all the pilot things. So she knew the kind of like fortitude and drive you had to have. So she would look at these women and see, do they have that? Um, so she like this was like we're at the library for hours and hours researching these people kind of things because they weren't contacting them. They weren't calling and asking because this is that secret. They can't contact them until they have been chosen. It's like a creepy like you get a secret letter in the mail. Meet God, me at this time. This is like, situation. This thing. It's like a weird mix of a league of their own. The right stuff and men in black. Uh, at the time, there were nearly 10,000 women in aviation. We still have a huge equity problem in aviation with women. Like, there are far fewer female pilots than there are male pilots. Um, though, of those 10,000, most were still at the student level. 782 women had commercial pilots' licenses. As she shortened the list more and more and more, like, she cut off the people who didn't meet the flight hours or people who hadn't flown in a long time, like, things like that. More and more, she realized, I know these names. I know these people. They're all white. She didn't like that. <laughs> Jerry Cop was like, we can't only have white women doing this. If we're going to go for this, we're going to go for this. But the problem was not that, and she actually was like, it's not that black pilots were worse or Native American pilots or Asian pilots. They weren't worse. They weren't given the chances. I got to fly in part because I was white. They didn't get to fly as much because they weren't. So she went to um, Lovelace and she goes, okay, I found somebody that I really want to bring in for this. She meets all of our requirements. And he's like, okay, cool. Uh, She's Asian. Okay, cool. She lives in South Korea. And he's like, oh, no, we're only using Americans. So we can kind of do an apples to apples, prove that American women can do this situation. 
So the final 13 all end up being white because mm. they needed them to meet those qualifications. But she tried. She actually did look like this woman somehow managed. Like, I'm assuming I, I, I can just see her at the library and she's like, librarians, be quiet. Don't tell us. Any, don't tell anybody. And librarians like we, we, we have the code of secrecy. It's We do have a code of secrecy. They actually, actually do. <laughs> you can go to a librarian. And as long as you don't like admit to committing a crime that they have to call in, you're yeah, pretty OK. Like, I, literally, I think like the only stuff we report. Yeah, it's only like actual crimes. It's like, um, I just murdered somebody. Can you show me to the section on how to clean up that? Sure, I'll show and, you. And like the only like only thing that we like you cannot look up in the library is uh bestiality and child pornography. Everything else we'll help you find, oh, but we I, can't do that. I have seen some very interesting porn on library computers. Not yeah. the one here, but Oh, we've, I've seen a lot. I'm of sure you have, oh, but God. watching some of the homeless guys watch the porn when I lived in Boston, I was like, okay, I get that you can't do this elsewhere, but seriously, bro, yeah. at least go someplace where you're against a wall. There's all those ones back in the corner. Go to one of those. Go to those. Um, so they all did end up being white in the end. The final 13. They, they did write letters to more than these 13 women. They chose more than 13. These were the 13 who agreed and got to a certain point in the testing. They literally got like these letters in the mail. And you know how you just throw mail down and you kind of ignore it? Some of them did that (laughs) until they were like, oh, this is a weird thing. Let me open it before I throw it in the trash. And like some of them were like, wait, is this a joke? Like, what the fuck is this? A couple, one of them was uh, best friends with Jerry Cobb. <laughs> so she didn't know about what Jerry was doing, but she was like, this, she's like, I feel like Jerry is doing this. Um, so the final 13, Myrtle Cagle, Jerry Cobb, Janet Dietrich, Marion Dietrich, they were identical twins. One of them tried to back out. The other one was like, I am very disappointed in you. So she was like, <laughs> God damn it. Uh, Wally Funk, the one who was going up into the uh, suborbital space. Sarah Gorlick, Janie Briggs Hart, Jean Hickson, Rhea Waltman, Jean Nora Stum- Stumbau, Irene Leverton, Jerry Sloan, and Bernice Stedman. So those are the 13 women that we're going to talk about next week and find out why they didn't get to go to space. Oh. I'm not going to ask questions today. That was cool. And also a bummer. Yes. Um, and it also comes to show, like, this is the 1950- late 1950s, early 1960s. So we're looking at 60 years ago. Jesus Christ. Yeah. No, also, I want to point out, Wally Funk is going to space. And she trained for this 60 goddamn years ago. Yeah. She's still alive, for one. She's not the only one still alive. I think one other one is still alive. Several of them have died in the last two years. Um, I believe the one from Kansas City might be the other alive one. I think there's only two that are still around. I'll double check and I'll talk about it next week. But Wally gets to go to space, and I really hope that she's okay. And I really hope that because she was she was the youngest. She was either 21 or 23. I'll have to double check next week. She was younger than their age minimum. But like I said, they made exceptions. Just like there is one who was significantly over their age maximum. She was the one with nine kids, as you might imagine, who was like, "Fuck the system, go into space. You're gonna like her." Um, I'm not going to get fully into all of these women's backgrounds because I want to talk about the program itself, but I will talk about each of these women next week a little bit because they're cool. We have more information on some than others, but guys, this topic, if I had known about it last week, I would have talked about it last week. But So guys, root for Wally to kick some people out of a spaceship. Yeah. Eh. I don't know anything about her political leanings. I don't know anything about anything other than the fact that she's been trying to do this for 60 years. And God damn, I'm glad she gets to do it, even if it is with the root of all evil. Yeah. Because sometimes you gotta make the choice. It's for the greater good. It's Ugh, she, Wally applied for the space program three times oh. after this. Like she passed all these tests. When they let women in, she was like, sweet, because she was still only in her 
30s? She's still qualified? And they said no, because she wasn't an engineer. Ugh. And because she'd never been a test pilot, so clearly she can't handle this. She's like, I've passed all your tests! I am a flight instructor! I do this for real! Ugh. Seriously? So, Wally, we're rooting for you. Glad you finally get to do this. Yep. Sorry, it's with Bezos. He's going to make it about him. Yep. It's not about him, Wally. It's about you. It's about you, Wally. So that is the beginning of the Mercury 13. Oh boy, I can't wait for part two of this. Mm-hmm. So where can people find us? Uh, They can find us on Twitter at On The Test Pod, Instagram, which I need to get better at, on at On The Test Pod, Facebook slash On The Test Pod, or Will This Be On The Test? Look for the uh, statue that's face palming. Uh, or on the testpod.com. Usually you can also find us sitting in our living room watching Aurora Tea Garden Mysteries because, yeah. by God, we have not gotten over the Hallmark movies thing. Like, if you go back to December, guys, I talk about Hallmark movies. It has started a problem. And then we watched, uh, like, 12 days of Lacey Chabert yes, Christmas if, movies. If you're interested, we've got a whole separate blog on, on the testpod.com where we, ha- we have Chabertmas. Uh, we'll have to do it. It was so much fun, guys. It was. Like, why are we not? It's Christmas in July right now. Why aren't we doing this? It's like maybe we could do a bonus episode for our Patreons. We have no patrons. We don't have any. We should do that. Should... <laughs> okay, guys, these the five of you who listen, if you want to send us a hundred bucks each, we'll do a separate episode just for you while we it's watch our, a Hallmark our, movie. We have our $28 million a month uh, Patreon rewards here <laughs> in which we uh, summarize a Hallmark movie for you. That's it, though. And we only it's a five-minute episode. Five-minute episode. And it's the same every week. We just switch out some names yeah oh my god we could get away with that but we just revealed our plan on our podcast oh alas aurora tea garden would have found us out much earlier so much quicker also though guys if you like watch these aurora tea garden mysteries if nothing else you have to admire how great the costume department does on fitting things to candace cameron beret's body because damn yeah everything is perfectly tailored and she's got like 20 inch heels on because she's, I don't think she's very tall. No. So yeah, find us online. Please rate, review, subscribe. Because we are still an itty bitty podcast, and it's been almost two years now. And obviously, there are things that like we need to learn how to get music and mm-hmm. things. I've been trying. I've been trying to do the research and figure out. At least we're not doing the bell at the beginning anymore. Yeah, that was the bell wasn't great. The, the jumping straight into it, I think, is better than the bell. Yeah. But if you really miss the bell, send us a tweet at on the test pod and let us know. Twitter is the best way to reach us. If you missed the tintinabulation of the bells, bells, bells. Excellent. Some Edgar Allan Poe. I am a font of knowledge. Did you remember that from the play I directed, though? No. Wow. Please, I know things. Like, all of my knowledge doesn't come directly from you. Just the vast majority of it. Are there ethically sourced skulls? Um, well, in these, uh, two, in this <laughs> five hour long Dear TED Lord, talk. I should do, I should start doing... Oh my god. Oh my god. My new podcast, The Dead Talks. <laughs> Dead Talks. Yes. Yes. Uh, TM. <laughs> I'm sure it's already exists. Um, yeah. But thank you for coming to my Dead Talk. <laughs> and on that note, class, class dismissed. dismissed.